Hello everyone and welcome to Blended. Last month I was joined by India and Miguel to talk about OCD, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. It's a really interesting topic because it's a name I think a lot of people recognize, but I'm not sure it's something that as many people really understand. And that is why we do this show. So we got deep and authentic. Our panel shared their personal experiences with OCD. We talked about the impact of the media on this particular illness. We discussed issues around stereotypes and assumptions, and the panel gave their advice for creating more supportive and inclusive workspaces. It was such an interesting episode, and it really helped to start to break down stigmas. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you missed it, don't forget that you can go and check it out over on letstalksupplychain.com or wherever you subscribe to Blended Podcast. It was episode 242. So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by another amazing panel of guests. And today we're talking about community and culture. It's a huge beast to tackle, but sometimes we get the best conversations and most fascinating insights from letting our guests open up, share their truths, and bring a really intimate look at the topic from their perspective. So welcome to Lisa, Victoria, and Jennifer, who are going to share their thoughts and experiences with us today. So thank you, ladies, for joining us. Let's get started with some introductions. Can each of you tell me who you are, what you do, and how you identify? And I'll start with Lisa. Hello there. I'm Lisa morales Hellebo, and I identify as Afro-Latina. I'm Puerto Rican from the Bronx. And as an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, uh, a New Yorker, that's a huge part of my identity, um, a data nerd meets fashionista. Love it. <laughs> um, and left and right brained, um, definitely more heavily skewed and creative. Um, and let's see, mom for mama. <laughs> I have a little, I have a tiny little doggo. Um, wife, mother. I have two boys, 13 and 16, and they're both taller than me already. Uh, <laughs> and just an insatiably curious um, lifetime learner, always love at that. day one. Love that. Always love having you on the show, Lisa. So welcome <laughs> back. And I can't wait to hear your perspectives on this one. Uh, we, get, we have some very good conversations. So I'm sure this is not going to disappoint. Victoria, let's go to you next. Tough to follow that one. Um, so I'm Victoria. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I identify as disabled. I'm a disability advocate, speaker, writer, adaptive designer, um, sort of a serial entrepreneur that's kind of new to me, more than one thing going at the same time. Uh, I li like to overload myself with multiple spinning plates and determine not to sleep, apparently. Um, yeah, I think that's me, like super creative, left-handed. That is part of my creativity. Um, yeah, that's me. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much for coming on. When you and I met, we talked all about your brand and how disability is such an important part of the conversation in diversity and inclusion. And we don't hear from people in that world enough. So I'm really glad that you're here. Jennifer, absolutely last but not least, let's hear from you. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, I am a Christian First Nations Ojibwe, French-Canadian female entrepreneur, uh, speaker, <laughs> wife, mother, and uh, mother to a three-month-old baby girl. Uh, my first, very exciting. 
I'm uh, the founder and CEO of StaffShop, which is an award-winning uh, diverse supplier providing employment and staffing solutions uh, to thousands of people across Canada with a few clients in the U.S. and the Caribbean. And on the speaking side, I speak about uh, Indigenous truth and reconciliation, especially in the workplace, uh, supplier diversity, and I speak on, um, I like to help uh uh, indigenous uh, women-led businesses, especially young entrepreneurs and startups. I love that. And thank you so much for being here, Jennifer, because again, Indigenous is such an important part of this conversation and we don't hear enough from the community um, about perspectives and stories and how we can move things forward, how we can support, how we can be allies, that kind of thing. So really excited to get into this conversation. Um, so very much like some of the previous episodes we've done with such a broad topic, like story of my life and my journey. I think this episode is going to be less about questions and answers and more about sharing those experiences and comparing notes, if you like. So in order to discover more about each other and find out what we can can learn. So let's start talking about culture, firstly in general, and then we'll dive into our personal experiences. What makes a culture? Is it arts? Is it customs? Is it religion? Uh, Jennifer, I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I think of culture, I think of almost uh, a brand in a way. A uh, brand is almost like the, the way people feel when they uh, are in your culture or when they uh, experience things within your culture. And so it's it's a unique way of life. Um, usually, I think, guided by values. Uh, for me, that's how an organization runs. Uh, Staff Shop, for example, our core values are faith, passion, and freedom. And uh, they really help us foster and, and protect our culture. Um, faith is, is about, you know, having faith in our people, having faith in the process, having faith. Um, there's a long list of things that we have faith in, in order to do um, the work that we do. And then passion is also the way that we interact with people and freedom. Um, freedom is great as one of the, my favorite values, because we give people a lot of um, freedom in terms of how they work and where they work and, uh, their ideas and their creativity and et cetera. And I think that all of these things um, help kind of define or build a culture. Yeah. And I think it also drives the word respect as well, right? From the word that you're using as far as freedom is that you're respecting, you're respecting people's cultures, you're, you're respecting how they want to work and where they want to work and how they envision work being a part of their life rather than the other way around, which is how we've worked for a very, very long time. Lisa, I see you're nodding your head. Um, I love that you took the lens of, of a company, um, but if you go more macro, for me, being Afro-Latina and a, a lover of travel, <laughs> one of the things that defines culture to me is food. <laughs> <laughs> Food, music, art, <laughs> um, absolutely in the Latino clothing. community. It, yes, clothing, right. um, music. Oh my God, self-expression and creativity is a huge, like I can't imagine a single culture throughout time that didn't have an amazing uh, 
arena of self-expression and creativity. And I think that you can really assess a, a culture by its creative. Um, so, but anyways, I think that I, I totally agree with the shared values um, and how it leads to, it's all sort of rooted in uh, a mutual respect and mutual understanding of those shared values, which is really, again, if you blow it up macro and look at the United States today, a really interesting uh, assessment as to what the root cause is of all the conflict and divide that's happening within our own culture and country. We really are no longer remotely aligned on those shared values or even what what is mutual respect for your fellow Americans. Well, and I think that that's a good point because I think that's really shifted for a lot of different people. A lot of, we're more open to a lot more things than we used to be, right? And you can't really look at somebody and define their culture, right? And you have a variety of different cultures in your background. And so, you know, if somebody comes to you and says that I'm Muslim and I I want to, um, you know, follow the holidays within my religion and my culture. And these are the days that I need off. I mean, before, you know, in a lot of respects, that wasn't even a question. And now people are more open and they're not questioning people or we shouldn't be questioning people when they come because they might not look Muslim, but they might be Muslim. And I think we're learning really, really quickly about how individualistic we are and how it comes in so many forms, right? And so for you, Lisa, having such a mixed background and having different cultures that you gravitate to in a variety of different ways, you might not embrace one 100%, maybe you take 50% from here and 25% from here. You know, how does that work for you in your life and and your work and, and how you sort of take a look at culture in the workplace, you know, culture, yeah. personal culture in the workplace? Yeah. So for me, um, my personal self-identity, even claiming my identity as Afro-Latina has taken me a lifetime, which is really sad um, because I was born in the Bronx, but my parents moved us up to Westchester, New York when I was three. And we were the only uh, people of color, shall you say, (laughs) throughout the 80s in in our region. Um, So it was very much grilled into me that you're different. Something's wrong with you. Mm. Why are you... I literally went to private Catholic school and the kids on the bus, these good Catholic kids, <laughs> would spit on me on the bus to give me a shower because I was so brown and dirty. Um, and, you know, ask me, what are you? I'm like, I'm a girl. <laughs> and they're like, no, but what are you? I'm a person. Yeah. And it would be the most horrible racial epithets. And so it was really uncomfortable for me to even self-identify as being Puerto Rican because right. it was it was rooted in this um, daily uh, processing of it being shameful or something to be embarrassed of and to hide. And so my parents didn't even raise us with um, speaking Puerto, uh, speaking Spanish or knowing much about the Puerto Rican culture uh, because they didn't want to make it any harder for us. Mm. And so I was deeply ingrained throughout my childhood, and I didn't realize until I was in my 30s when I made my first Puerto Rican girlfriend <laughs> Through a work uh, engagement, we started working together. She was a client, and we were instantly blah, 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 just 
just uh, such a natural um, instant love and deep affection for this total stranger <laughs> and I'd never experienced that before in my life um, all of and I looked back and all my girlfriends and best friends throughout my childhood and life were blonde haired blue eyed <laughs> uh, white chicks that were totally different than me um, so it definitely shaped the lens that I saw my own culture through and the value of people that looked like me which is such a painful thing that I'm still grappling with today that I just wish other people would, would understand mm -hmm. and take a moment to have, uh, we, we use, we have a lot of, um, we have core values within uh, refashioned OS and one of them is um, to be human and in that, you know, to give each other grace for our differences to not get frustrated with somebody because they have slightly different neuro neurodiversity and it takes them a different way to process information, to not um, make assumptions about their religion or gender, mm -hmm. and to give them just just give them grace in, yeah. in our differences because they're really value-add and should be celebrated. So when I was 30, uh, let's see, 38, I finally became really fully embracing of my own culture because I was asked to be on the advisory board for a Puerto Rican startup accelerator. And I was like, wait, I need to really dig into my own culture and my island and understand it. And I, I for the first time, really was um, proud of my little island mm. and the beauty of the culture. And they were bringing in uh, Sebastian Vidal, who is an amazing uh, individual. But when I first met him, I was like, you're from Chile. You don't even understand my culture and my island. It's not like Chile. We don't have the same resources. <laughs> and so um, as a result of that, I spent uh, a week every month for a year on the island exploring my culture and what I could learn from it and give back to it. And it gave me that deep pride and, and desire to reclaim being Afro-Latina and yeah. to, to be an example, to be visible for other Afro-Latinas that your strength is your diversity and your differences. Don't let anyone else define your value. Yes. And I think one of the most important things that you said there is that everybody is on a journey. So if somebody comes to you tomorrow and says, you know, I celebrate this holiday, this is my culture, and then maybe a week later they're like, wait a minute, I need to tweak that a little bit. This one's now my holiday. I mean, like you said, the word grace rather than, I mean, there's also empathy, right? But I really like that word grace that you used because it's really just about giving people the space to find out who they are because a lot for a lot of us, it's been repressed for a long time because we haven't, like growing up, we haven't had the opportunity to really, you know, find out what that is for us. This next generation that's coming up after us and the generation after that, you know, they have had a lot more opportunity to be able to do that. But there's still a big group of people that are just finding out what that means and what that journey looks like for them. And grace is super, super important. So Victoria, heading over to you for the culture conversation. I mean, you have, you're a part of a variety of different communities, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so culture is probably defined in a multitude of different ways for you. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like when I think of culture, I'm thinking 
you know, sort of things that are passed down through family and tradition. And when you look at the UK and some of our culture, obviously, there's not a huge amount to always be proud of, um, especially on a global stage. <laughs> and then, you know, considering um, that culture in the UK, I mean, this is obviously also a global sort of consideration, but culture, like English culture has completely erased disability. Um, you know, so I, I don't really see disability as a, as a culture. It's more of a community. But then you look at the the deaf community and they consider it a culture um so you know there are different ways around it but yeah i mean culture here you know london i consider to be very cultural because there's a bit of it's a melting pot of everything and that in itself feels like culture but given the lack of visibility for disabled people it's kind of really tough to sort of embrace a culture that has for so long sort of hidden us away and sort of made you know made it very difficult to live an equitable life as everybody else and obviously there's you know that that translates into gender and race and age and everything else that culture can erase. So, yeah, it's really hard, I find, as an English person, to have huge pride in our culture because what is English culture? You know, at the moment, it's it feels more hateful than it does embracing. I mean, I definitely think that's changing, but there's just, you know, historically so much that we have done wrong um, and that we haven't embraced. So I really love what Lisa was saying about grace, I think, there are more and more business owners that I know now that are sort of really looking into like leadership management and looking at communities and looking at cultures and learning and not being scared to learn about ones they don't know about. You know, it's it's exciting and new and nice to learn about other cultures that aren't your own. It doesn't mean you're wrong for not knowing, but it's, you know, it, it makes sense to learn about other cultures other than your own. Otherwise, you know, it's, well, if we were all the same, life would be very boring. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I want British. Go ahead. I want to make a point about grace versus empathy because we expressly talked about the differences of that within our own team. Empathy, it, it puts an imposition on the person that's being asked to be empathetic, that you need to do something. to. Um, but grace is an acknowledgement of you don't need to do anything, that that person, you just need to accept. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And I really love that. Power. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, and so, and, and thank you for sharing that. And so, Victoria, like my background is British as well. And the one thing I can think of for for culture is around food, which is what Lisa said earlier. Um, I'm all about the bubble and squeak after like a turkey dinner and all of that kind of stuff. So to me, you know, I that that's that's a good part of the culture. But also being Canadian, and this is going to go to Jennifer because we over the last year or so have really unearthed and really publicized some of the things that we've done as a country and nation. And so I do empathize with Victoria on the fact that, you know, there's a lot of things that we are not proud of as Canadians, a lot of things that have come to light for me that I've learned over the last, you know, year or 18 months that I really had no idea about. Call it ignorance, call it whatever you want to call it. I, I, I don't know. But talk us through, you know, some of that, because obviously you're part of the Indigenous community. Talk to us about your culture and talk about how the last year or 18 months um, has been for your culture? Has it been enlightening? Has it been good? Has it been bad? Like what, what are, what are you, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? Yeah, I know it's been intense. Um, I mean, if I back up, uh, similar to Lisa, I actually didn't even connect with 
uh, my own indigenous roots until my teens. Um, grew up in French Catholic schools and in that type of environment. And then also when I think of culture, uh, just before I answer that question, is um, I had to juggle what I, I feel like there's different types of cultures and almost um, had to juggle different types of culture, like the culture at home, culture at school, the yes. culture... Um, the culture at my dad's house versus my mom's house when they separated. And um, <clears throat> for the longest time, uh, the Indigenous side comes from my mother and my grandmother. Um, I didn't find out until my teens that I was Indigenous and huh. didn't really um, embrace it until then. I think my mother kind of kept it from me for, I'm, I'm not sure what reason, maybe she was afraid of um, some of the stereotypes and um, and the, the, the things that people might think about us. Um, it's not until she embraced it anyway, did I. Um, and that's after my grandmother passed away. So I missed out on a lot. I could have learned the Ojibwe language. Um, some of the things that we learned this year, the horrible things that have happened that we're uncovering, um, a lot of this is, is also new to me and I'm still learning. Um, I have done a lot of training, of course, uh, and I have uh, great Indigenous mentors, but um, there was kind of that shame or guilt uh, a little bit on my side until I was really able to just be like, okay, no, I am Indigenous. I'm proud of my roots. This is amazing. I have a lot to learn and and uh, I'm going to continue on that track. But um, um, with regards to what's going on uh, these days, I mean, it makes it even tougher for people like myself as speakers because uh, I am Christian uh, and uh, the church was the oppressor for, for many Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I get asked the question as well, you know, how can you be Christian and Indigenous at the same time? Mm. Um, it's, uh, it, I could talk about that for a long time, but I mean, the short, the short answer is, and this is also what I learned from my mentors is just, yes, these horrible things happened, but in order to move forward, have to be able to, um, forgive and and understand and and really move on and show love instead of more hate and so when i kind of relive some of my own personal traumatic experiences or uh, oppression challenges that i went through uh, there was a lot of like domestic violence and abuse in my household for a period of time alcoholism etc um i really have to look at it and and focus on the healing aspect um take that time to process the emotion uh, certainly don't, you know, uh, put, put it away and, and not deal with it. But um, what can we do to move things forward? And reconciliation is really what I'm focused on. Um, I love to speak from a place of, of love and understanding and forgiveness. And what can we do, you know, going forward? I think that um, what we're uncovering is actually shining a lot of light in, in, a, in a dark place. And mm -hmm. Unfortunately, maybe it will get a little worse before it gets better in terms of what we uncover. But um, for the most part, we are reconciling by having these conversations. Um, and even in looking at the Truth and Reconciliation Report, uh, there are a lot of things that have been accomplished so far, and we are at least moving in the right direction. Still a lot of work to do, but mm -hmm. yeah, I just I choose to focus on um, the positives and, and the forgiveness and the, the solutions as opposed to coming from an angry or bitter place because yeah. I know that I know that some um, some of my people are still very very hurt and angry and, and I, I I give them uh, the most grace and, and empathy I possibly can. Um, I just uh, I'm more concerned with moving things forward, so I don't want to perpetuate the cycle. I'm, I really like breaking cycles, and so yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit, like, what have you learned about your culture? What, what are some of the amazing things about your culture? Because it's, it's rich in history. Um, the Indigenous community is, is rich in color as well. Like, you, you wear some of the most amazing clothing and have some of the most amazing um, traditions as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So it starts with my grandmother, actually, even though I didn't learn the language, I was still around her. She spoke the language and I spent a lot of the summers uh, with her up on Manitoulin Island in Northern Ontario, mm-hmm. um, a beautiful island. And that's where my tribe is from. And um, she, uh, she was so sweet. Um, I, I feel like the Indigenous people are, are healers and uh, very spiritual, and um, you always felt uh, just that peace around her. She was very soft-spoken, uh, and I see that as well. And so we would go to um, things, we would go to powwows or things that, uh, that, like the dance, the culture, the dancing and the culture is awesome. The, the, the clothes, yes, I always had that. That was great. <laughs> Um, but one thing that stands out to me is cedar. So on the island, there are so many cedar trees and cedar is um, a special healing protective type of medicine for indigenous people. Okay. And in the middle of a storm, my grandmother used to run out and gra- like frantically run out and grab a piece of cedar off the tree and bring it back in. She would put some in our purses and she always carried cedar around as like good luck and protection. And uh, it does have actually a lot of healing properties to it as well. Like I I think you can boil it. Uh, I haven't done that yet. Boil it and almost drink it like a tea. And there's other things about it. But cedar is just special to me. It's just a special tree. And um, I do remember that. And it's very special to Indigenous people. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then Lisa, you've been on a journey of your own too. What have you found out about your your culture that you can kind of share with us? Because I think one of the most important parts of this conversation or these conversations is to dive a little bit deeper into what the cultures are and how it makes makes up people. And when they come to you and they talk about something or have a certain perspective, you get a better understanding of who you are and the culture that you come from. So yeah. So first of all, I have learned that um, this is totally opinion, but one of the things that I, I believe now after truly understanding my people and my island and its innate beauty is that um, one of the things that I, I'll make a massive generalization, but uh, white people um tend to look down on brown people and their cultures because I think there's a lot of confusion that we're not uh, miserable despite having little to nothing. Right. Okay. <laughs> they just they just want us to, like, how dare you be happy and enjoy? Like, looking back at slavery, when the slaves would sing and have their own joy and culture, uh, you know, it, it would further infuriate <laughs> They're white masters. Um, And so I think for Puerto Rico, it's been um, in poverty and we are one of the last remaining colonies. (laughs) You know, we are uh, U.S. citizens, but we don't have the right to vote. We have uh, the most. Yeah, (laughs) I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's dreadful. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we um, have the uh, per capita, the most. Uh, people that register and go into armed forces and serve in the U.S. military. 
Wow. <laughs> and um, we are, uh, we have historically been treated as, you know, literally a colony that they could run experiments on. Puerto Rico was one of the first, was an island that they used uh, to do um, fertility testing hmm. on women. And they just decided to give the women of Puerto Rico all kinds of uh, drugs that interacted with their ability to reproduce because they were subhuman or sub-American and figured, you know, we don't owe them anything. What is <laughs> happening? Is this happening right now? And is that no, it was, government? It was, because <laughs> I, I am just like, we are in 2022. What, what is it? It yeah. does happen a little bit still. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I think the, I can't remember his name, but the, the American guy, um, he's a really famous gynecologist, but yeah, he tested mm -hmm. everything on essentially black women, especially, but also black disabled women, all sorts of stuff. And yeah. it's just, yeah, it's mind boggling. that, And, yeah. and even on the island. Um, so one of the reasons I grew up without really understanding my own culture is that my dad and my mom are both Puerto Rican. My dad looks like a white guy. <laughs> he was uh, blonde haired when he was a baby and white, white skin. He's from Mayagüez. Uh, and my mom is from San Juan and has Taino and African in her. So she's even, she's darker than me. And when my dad married my mom, his family disowned him because oh. he, he was marrying beneath their family because she was dark and brown. Wow. Um, so I didn't know that entire side of my family. <laughs> and still to this day, really don't have any deep ties. Um, so, but the positive things that I've learned about my island is that despite having so little and being treated so deplorably by the U.S. government, and I mean, just a, a perfect example is the way that we handled um, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and the throwing paper towels at the people, like, be grateful for what the U.S. government is giving you. Um, and the fact that they, uh, you know, had no electricity for so long and so many people were dying and, and they didn't report how many American citizens were literally just being left to die in their homes um, mm. because the U.S. government didn't care to send enough people to support them, people that had medical issues, couldn't get to anyone for help or dialysis or whatever. They literally had these huge trucks where they were storing all the dead bodies. That wasn't really reported um, mm. here stateside. But despite all that, our people were so resilient. And I personally know one of my girlfriends I'm so proud of that um, created the first food kitchen and a community kitchen in the island. And she gathered all the local resources and everyone, our people will give you everything they have, even though in most people's eyes, they have nothing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I, I literally come from pig farmers in the mountains of Puerto Rico that have uh, tin houses with wells they have to go and fetch water from. And it's poverty. There's about 40, or before Maria, there was 47, 48% poverty on the island. Those mm. are my people. But you still, wow. you visit them and they will cook you food. They will play some music and they will dance and celebrate right. and enjoy each other. Mm -hmm. um, it's that innate joy and sense of community and culture that it's not what you have, it's who, who you have mm -hmm. and what you can give to others that 
defines us as a people. Um, And as a result of all those hardships, it has led to an explosion of creativity. If you look at the Puerto Rican people, you'll see J-Lo, you know, Ricky Martin, all these cultural icons, Mark Anthony, um, uh, Pitbull, all of these American uh, or amazing musicians and um, icons of fashion and style and taste, all of the best creative and art is born out of um, hardship. Yeah. And well, so, and you serve, right? You were saying yeah. that a large portion of your community goes out and serves as well. And that is a true testament to the community and the culture and the people around them. And how, even after everything, how they view the American, the country of America, right? The country of yeah. the United States of America. So that's, and one of the things that you brought up, and I'm going to get back to culture and community, and I want to go to Victoria <laughs> for that, but you brought up trauma. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's, I think it's intergenerational trauma. And so you were talking about some of the things that your parents and grandparents have gone through. Jennifer, I, I would assume has that as well. So how, how, um, I don't, I don't, I can't think of the word right now, but how does that um, reflect onto your culture and your community? Right, because it has a it's a big component that we are only really starting to think about and talk about, but it has a lot of it, it a lot of weight behind culture and how you deal with things as a family and as people. And I think as we move through generations, I think it's becoming a little bit easier to have conversations. But depending on what they've been through and how that's happened, like how are you working through that? Oh, it's I know a it's journey. a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, it's been a lifetime journey, and I'm still yeah. working on it. But I will say that it, in my 30s, after having my own children, it became so clear to me how my parents chose to deal with their own trauma. Okay, and how I wanted to break that cycle because I wanted my children to feel pride. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's really sad to me that past generations felt shame. Yeah, and didn't have the space to mm-hmm. feel it and to explore it. Like that that is the biggest, you know, devastation I think of generations before us is that they just didn't have the grace and the space to be able to to deal with it. But I think that yeah. that's the beauty and the magic of the generations coming and who are here now that are opening hearts and minds and opening the space to have that conversation so that everybody can sort of work through it together. And maybe that's what needed to happen. I don't know. Yeah. I think I, I've had a lot of conversations recently about how our uh, civilization <laughs> in civilized society, society, first world countries, has become so ugly and uncivilized and how we are the first world countries are the reason that our planet is is dying or more importantly killing humanity we're the stupidest species to have ever existed <laughs> you, <laughs> you heard know? it here folks lisa has, has laid it on the line <laughs> and that our ancestors that we deemed as so uncivilized had such wisdom mm-hmm. you know and and truly that that uh, proverb of, you know, um, 
the the hunter is always going to be glorified until the lion learns to speak um, or write. And it's so true because the lens that our entire worldview has been cast from is mm. so skewed and so broken. And um, we really need to rethink and re assess and, and really reprioritize the wisdom of our ancestors and our indigenous cultures and peoples that had such a, a harmony with nature and Mother Earth and mm, that all of these all of these things that we saw as, you know, needing to be improved with modern medicine that now makes keeps us sick and, you know, that we have ways that they were so much wiser in in how to work with nature and work with the harmony of your body and society um, that we have lost. And mm-hmm. we, it, it may be too late to yeah. really circle back and reinvest in celebrating and revering and um, revaluing how we approach what we define as society and civilization because but it capitalism, starts with all of, well and it starts capitalism with all of us. is the root evil i believe but it starts with all of us and the way that we make an impact is through conversations like this and just a little bit at a time because everybody can do a little bit every day towards something you know that they want to see changed and i think you know we really need to get behind that message because everybody's like oh you know i'm not going to do that cuz it's really not going to make any difference i'm just going to wait till somebody else does it and the time for that has totally passed us and we each have a responsibility for that so before i go to victoria jennifer did you want to jump on anything that <laughs> lisa kind of talked about in regards to that trauma and intergenerational um, yeah, no, it's definitely tough. And I feel you, I've, uh, man, I've had to struggle so much, even throughout my own life. I can't imagine others. Uh, but for me, when my parents divorced, I was seven, uh, my mom ended up dating a series of, uh, oh, loser boyfriends and ended up with my stepfather who was bipolar. And, um, they, uh, they fought a lot. There was a lot of domestic violence. Uh, he abused her physically, mentally, but physically almost killed her, I would say six times or so. And so I spent uh, the majority of my teens trying to save my mother. And, uh, so all kinds of things would happen. Like I'd have to run outside in the middle of the night, knock on the neighbor's door, ask them to call the police. And, um, and of course we would get him thrown in jail, but then my mom would take him back. So by the time the court date rolled around, I'd have to pretend like it never happened. And so that, um, compromised, I think my values. And I remember, uh, shifting into a different person. I was very angry and very rebellious as a teenager. And therefore I ended up wandering down dark paths myself until, uh, thank God I found my way, my way back. But, uh, I had to become a workaholic first and there's all kinds of things that come with being a workaholic and having more of a materialistic vision board. Um, I had to, uh, you know, surround myself with the right people, reconnect with my faith. Uh, I did a lot of therapy for years. Uh, EMDR specifically is great therapy for uh, PTSD. And, um, and I always say, you know, for me, it's uh, uh, reconnecting with my faith was very deep. It uh, healed me from the inside out. Um, therapy is great. It's a great tool, but, uh, I had to change my heart. My heart was very hard and it was very like 
black for a while. And um, that just, uh, that really kind of shapes, you know, your decisions, the way you look at life, the way you look at people, how, how you trust or not trust. And so I always say, you know, God has the power to heal faster than decades of therapy. And um, uh, for me, that's what helped me become vulnerable and authentic again, and, and able to have humility. So um, it's been quite the journey. And that's why I like to help um, Indigenous yeah. women, especially young entrepreneurs, etc. That's why I speak on the topic quite a bit. Um, yeah, really important. And so, um, uh, that, that would be my experience, I guess, uh, with, uh, some of those cycles that, uh, I had to break and then, um, sorry, what was the first part of your question? Cause I did have something there that I forgot. Um, um, it was just around, you know, the, the, um, the intergenerational trauma and how that sort of affects your culture and how it affects, you know, because you were also talking about different cultures, right? You've got cultures at home, cultures at work, and yes. go ahead. And, and uh, thank you for reminding me. Uh, a, an important one is imposter syndrome. So yes, these different <laughs> these different cultures that I had to like juggle because I had to pretend at school like nothing was happening at home, and then I'd have to play it, enter into a different culture at my dad's house and a different culture at work and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like the imposter syndrome almost started when I was young, 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 like 11 or 12. And then it reared its ugly head uh, throughout my career as I became more and more successful. Um, uh, it, uh, it crept up on me. And I remember uh, being top of my game um, in a sales role at one point. And all of a sudden, there are just a few things that uh, had happened that year that kind of, I guess, triggered me in the wrong way. And uh, I started doubting myself and having, you know, phobias before uh, presentations because I had I was I had become such a perfectionist. And there's different types of imposter syndrome. I think there's like four or five, but perfectionism is one of them. And um, I was just, I was winning all the time. And I remember um, blanking out, uh, just forgetting my introduction one day and freezing in front of the audience for maybe 10 seconds. For me, it felt like an hour. And I know, I remember beating myself up about that. I was crying and, and my boss at the time was like, Jen, like, this is like not a big deal. I mean, you froze for 10 seconds. No one even noticed. And I was like, I can't believe like, this is unacceptable. Like my job to sell and to close this deal. Like I can't make mistakes like this. Like I was just a disaster. And then I, I developed this phobia that it would happen again at the beginning of every presentation. Right. So every time a presentation would start, I was like, I would start getting almost like fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I had to wrestle through that. And it's not until uh, I went back to therapy and kind of like dug up some of this stuff. Of course, it was all tied to um, uh, yeah. some trauma that had happened. And so when I was able to to release that, thank God, I still pray for it. Uh, that it doesn't come back, uh, but it hasn't come back in, in years. But uh, this you. is a type of, this is a type of stuff that can happen. And I know that uh, yeah. lots of people struggle, but there is hope. Is is my point? Uh, yeah. There's always hope. You know, never lose hope. There's so many people and resources out there. Um, you know, I always believe that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing that. I just recently um, did hypnotherapy um, because I've had, I do have some inner child work and I was like over the last couple of years have realized some of my triggers and some of the things that have happened over and over and over again. And I've, I've always been in therapy. I've always 
um, said that therapy is, is good, but I wanted to try something a little bit different and subconscious. And so I tried the hypnotherapy and it's worked very, very well. But what you talk about, about imposter syndrome, I think everybody goes through it in a variety of different ways and through our cultures, through intergenerational trauma, through things that we've been through ourselves throughout our, our lives and our careers, we all have different triggers. And then again, I come back to that word grace, is that we need to have grace for people because we just really don't understand everything that somebody's been through and what that trigger could be. And it could be a trigger one day and not a trigger a next, but not to question that person. If that's the case, it's about, you know, having that grace and having that space for somebody to be able to work through whatever, because everybody's working through something on a day-to-day basis, everybody. So Victoria, I want to go over to you now because you talked about culture and community and Mm -hmm. how you see the, the uh, disability as a community, not a culture. Um, but I'm sure you've seen a variety of different cultures, you know, um, working through, um, obviously, with disabilities and how their culture has sort of played on that. So talk to us about the difference between culture and community. Okay. And um, then also talk to us about what you've seen within your community as well. So I think um, from, you know, from my perspective, I think it's very much you know, bearing in mind that 80% of people with a disability were not born that way, they acquire it. So it's kind of, you know, it's not like you necessarily, you're 80%. So you're not necessarily growing up with that as a culture anyway, because it's kind of thrust on us. And then we don't, you know, we don't talk about it. So when you're suddenly, for me, like suddenly being in that community rather than culture, you know, I didn't know, was it, did I even qualify as disabled? I think I've only really used that word to myself um, in the last three or four years, um, actually no, five years, because um, I had a, you know, a life-changing incident when I, in 2012, so, and it was sort of, you know, it was one of those overnight things, but suddenly going from, you know, never really seeing or hearing off, only thinking about disability in terms of wheelchair users and elderly people, um, it was just not something I had any experience of, you know, you kind of just muddle your way through, and then thanks to social media, and I mean, you know, spending so much time in hospital you make friends you know you go in and the nurses know who you are They're like oh you're back again you're like yeah I don't want to be here but fine um so you know there is there is it's, it's like a subculture I guess um so there's definitely that element to it but it's not it's not something that you traditionally see and it's not something that we, you know we have historically seen so it's I've definitely found it more of a community and there's a lot I mean you know it's not like we all agree with each other I think worldwide there's a billion of us it's the world's largest marginalized group and the only one that anyone can and will join at some point in their life you know even if it's a temporary disability or somebody that they know and love um so you know when you consider how many of us there are i think it's one in four in the us and one in five in the uk it's you know it's a lot of people wow. uh, and then to you know because there are so many of us but we are so well hidden um i think you know that's where there's it's almost like the last taboo now right. I think when we think about culture and communities it's the one that everyone's still too scared of getting things wrong or offending people um but I think you know as we all keep saying like there's so much grace it's it's better to have a go at engaging with the community and get it wrong and just say yeah I didn't know you know I have people all the time that say they don't know what's the right phrase to use what's the wrong phrase and you know even within that there's some people have no problem with certain phrases and some you know there's some that I absolutely abhor but 
you know, other people aren't as, as fussed about it. And language changes as well. You know, words that I used to use when I was developing, you know, Unhidden, words that I'd use then. And I look back on some of the, you know, the sort of my thoughts and bits of paper and scraps of designs and things. I think, God, thank goodness I did not put that out in the world because it's not a word that I would use now. But I think, you know, we have to, I think we definitely have to allow, we have to allow each other to get it wrong um, and to not be, you know, I had to lose being scared because, you know, even sort of, you almost have to sort of come out as disabled, especially when you look like me and you don't, you know, it's not visible and most disabilities aren't visible. I think um, something like, 17% 17% of disabled people are a wheelchair user. So that's a whole heap of other people that yeah. don't look how we're taught, you know, disability looks. So it's, yeah, so you kind of, you have to, you have to come out and say to somebody that you are, but you also then have to, unfortunately, generally what happens is you have to give your entire medical history because most people's first response is you don't look disabled. And like, well, you don't look like X, Y, Z, you know, you can't, you can't see chronic pain. You can't see rheumatoid arthritis. You can't see any of my conditions and I mean you can see the evidence of some of surgeries you know if I'm on the beach but other than that you know you can't tell unless I choose to tell you or if I you know use a a walking stick but even even accepting a mobility aid like that's only something I did at the beginning of 2020 and now we went into lockdown anyway so I almost immediately retired my walking stick (laughs) but you know it's I think that you know I really shunned using that because that was making it visible that was really that was going to change how people viewed me when I was out and about. And I thought, yeah. well, who's, you know, me being in pain for longer, who's really winning here when I don't use the things? And it, that's the thing, it's an aid, it's, it's liberating in the same way that wheelchair users are wheelchair users. They're not wheelchair bound. They are not, they're set free by their chair. They're not mm-hmm. trapped or bound by it. Without, without the chair, they can't get around, they can't leave the house. So yeah. it's really, you know, it's really interesting to sort of, see the like it's really nuanced obviously but it's it's a small thing but it can affect so many people so many good nuggets there right because you can't tell when looking at somebody what their culture is what their background is what they're going through and I think that that's something throughout this conversation that we need to highlight I think the other thing is is that you've all been on a journey in a variety of different ways, either through a culture or through community. Um, but it really comes back to how you identify and how you've been taught or how you've been taught to think about that community or that culture and how you have to overcome fears, right? You have to overcome stigma against some of the words that you're using or even an aid like you were talking about. So talk to me a little bit about the disability community and culture, because I think obviously with that many people within that community, they come from a variety of different cultures. And so what are you experiencing? What are people experiencing in that community from their own cultures, either good or bad? So, I mean, obviously, like you say, is huge. And I think one of the quickest ways of explaining it is the word ableism has only been around three or four years uh, it's not even in some dictionaries and that's kind of that's the the it's you know it's the prejudice against disabled people in favor of the superiority of non-disabled people um, but it expresses itself in like really really bizarre ways um you know so it could be you know when you tell someone that you have a disability and they might be like oh well at least you've got xyz you know which kind of undermines the thing but obviously there's also discrimination against you know, being able to get a job a lot of people assume 
you know, if you have so much wrong with you, how can you work? But, you know, you have to, life goes on, you have to work with a number of conditions. I know some incredible people that, you know, I still look at and go, but you just get used to it. That's the thing, you know, if you feel a certain way every day, you get used to it. Um, and then I think, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of subcultures, you know, there's people that will use the phrase spoony. So that's people that sort of like the idea of spoon theory, where you wake up each day with X amount of spoons and that's your energy, but you don't know on any given day what the energy that you have is and how many, you know, it might not be the same the next day. So it could change. Um, and then there's, you know, there's cancer patients don't tend to actually identify as disabled um, very often, but it's uh, another form of ableism is this assumption, you know, when we talk about people with cancer, that when they recover, they have nothing else wrong with them. And we're finding this with COVID as well, with long COVID, which has already been classified as a disability, which is kind of, it's good, but it's a bit offensive when you think about people with endometriosis and uh, fibromyalgia that might take up to seven years to get a diagnosis or people with ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, where that's still not recognized as a disability in a lot of cases. Um, so, yeah, there's I mean, there's so yeah, there's so many subsections to it. And but I think the overall the overwhelming thing is everyone really sort of really supports each other. Like even if you disagree on terminology, there's still always a bit of a common ground. You know, there's always, there'll always be um, like a doctor that says something ridiculous or, you know, a treatment that didn't work, but, you know, it was worth a try. And there's, I think there's always, yeah, it, it's, I don't know. It was kind of like, for me, it was like finding my own little club. I mean, I had four years where I was kind of almost shunning. I wasn't part of that community. I was just trying to get better with conditions that are degenerative and that aren't going to get better and as soon as I stopped trying to fight every symptom that I had I started to feel a bit more comfortable in who I am and I have real disabled pride um, but I think even that is an alien concept to non-disabled people like why would you be proud of having a body that works differently um, but there's you know there's so much to be proud of and I think we are some we are amongst the most um, innovative entrepreneurs because we have to be so creative just to exist in a society that really hasn't helped us um, very often. So yeah, there's, oh, I mean, there's so many bits of it. <laughs> Lisa, go ahead. I, I just want to um, mention, Victoria, I would love to introduce you to my friend, uh, Maz Hamid. He is a Silicon Valley um, serial entrepreneur and just uber all around genius and beautiful soul human. Um, he is building this uh, accelerator, not really an accelerator, uh, a venture studio or a venture lab to support founders with disabilities. Yes. And <laughs> so that they can be the ones creating their own innovations and technologies funded at venture scale. Nice. Um, and and he has um, really received a ton more pushback than he thought he would. He's had to teach people about just how many people are considered disabled, <laughs> because most people think that to be disabled, you do need to have like some physical That's, thing. Yeah. I need to see you're missing a limb, or like <laughs> um, need to be in a wheelchair. It's it's so many people that actually qualify as disabled, and like you said, things that cannot be seen. So he is looking to seek out and empower founders that uh, are disabled and are solving amazing. for their own problems. I think awesome. it's an amazing uh, awesome. program, awesome. and I'd love to connect you with them. 
Please do. I mean, there are a couple of places doing that in the UK now, which is great. Um, I actually gave like a feedback. They were like, how can we support disabled entrepreneurs? And we had like a little focus group. And then they went off and created like an accelerator for disabled founders based on sort of the things that we've given them. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a thing is, I mean, it's kind of, it sounds ridiculous. It's a really good time to be talking about disability because finally the conversation is turning that way. Mm. So like, it feels like every, if I'd have tried to release Unhidden, Three years ago, not very much, I don't think, would have happened. I think it's been this pause during the pandemic and this there has been more conversation around it that has really allowed me to sort of take it further than it would have been before, I think. Absolutely. I think and another, is, go ahead. Sorry, another component that I think is so mind boggling is that, again, it all comes down to who's been telling our stories yes. and who has gotten to make decisions in our c- culture and society that um, it's become so accepted that the white male founder can build and scale a company targeting like women's reproductive health. <laughs> or nobody can I mean, be started right on that. When you think about like who developed the speculum and the fact they haven't refined that in hundreds of years, you're like, and a, and a dude came up with it, you know, like yeah. oh, maybe we have some ladies having a look at what happens with gynecology. But and so this is one of the reasons why I chose to become a VC because I realized in my experience being on my island and seeing people of color constantly with their hands out and women of color with their hands out and nobody on the other side of the table seeing their value, not because they didn't have it, but because the lens that they look through the world at and the patterns that they match to and their unconscious biases wouldn't even let them entertain opening the email or the pitch deck because it's not for them. And I think the more that we can have people that are diverse, neurodiverse, uh, ability diverse, um, gender, ethnicity, lens that you see the world through diverse um, in positions of power, the more that we're going to be able to facilitate the change that needs to come. Yeah, and this is the magic of blended, connecting people, making sure that we're opening up opportunities for each other, um, because that is really what we need to be doing. So let's talk about how we support each other in our cultures and our communities. You know, how do we get to understand more about a person? I mean, yes, okay, you can ask questions and things like that, but some people are hesitant to ask questions. And then also in the workplace, how do we really get to understand or what whose responsibility is it to start the discussions, to talk about the culture, to talk about what you need from the workplace to be able to honor that and, you know, maybe help you on your journey and things like that. Jennifer, I'm going to start with you because obviously through Staff Shop, you're talking to a lot of businesses and talking a lot about, you know, employment and things like that. So talk to us about that. How do we facilitate these conversations and make sure that we honor everybody for who they are and what they believe and where they come from? Absolutely. It's such a great question. Um, So many things to say. The first thing on the Indigenous side of things, just because that's my focus, we're an Indigenous women-owned organization and diverse supplier. Um, When I do 
talks on the Indigenous Truth and Reconciliation, especially in the workplace, I have heard the, the question so often, like, well, what more can we do for Indigenous people? And I remember my mentor really? saying to me, yeah, like, just like, what do you guys want? Do you want more land? Do you want, like, what is it that, you, what, what can we do? <laughs> no, I have heard these things. Not you know, here in America. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough, but it's not like... <laughs> what more can we do? It's like, instead, like, we're not a problem to be solved. It's what maybe ask, like, what more can you learn from indigenous people? And then from there, you know, together, like, let's, let's work together. So uh, some of the things that I always remind people of is please just remember, and I'm sure that this is different for, for all kinds of um, uh, different uh, minority groups, but for indigenous people specifically in Canada, Um, It's important to remember that there's about 634 First Nations, Um, 600 of them are still in poverty. Poverty is actually our biggest issue. Um, It creates so many undercurrents. Uh, It creates so many barriers. The the Indigenous population in Canada, for example, is only around 4%. So already that's low. Um, So when it comes to attracting talent, uh, retaining talent is actually harder than attracting. And so there are things that that, uh, we do as an organization to make sure that uh, the retention period, probationary period, uh, we provide a lot of support there. Um, But I like to just remind people of those stats because 50% of First Nations still live on the reserve, 50% live off the reserve. If you live on the reserve, um, I mean, some reserves don't even have clean water still. Uh, Some have uh, issues with, you know, transportation, education opportunities, employment opportunities. Um, The list goes on. And so just remembering that. And so by the time an Indigenous person, let's say, comes into your workplace, um, there's also the corporate culture shock that happens. And so um, my people need a lot of support and need need to be understood. Eye contact is not always normal. Uh, Sometimes we feel like it's rude to stare at people or we feel like it's staring. So we might look down, um, firm handshakes, not popular either, uh, speaking up and saying something, oh my gosh, most would never to their, to their manager. So understanding these things, it's important for a leader. And it's also important for the people working alongside indigenous people. Um, all minority groups are important. I'm just specifically giving an example on, on indigenous, um, as leaders, I think, you know, uh, education, calling in the experts to, to speak on the topic, to just educate your staff. There's, there's a lot of uh, educational options out there. But um, as leaders, it's really about kind of sharing that power and privilege. Um, I'm still very privileged uh, and obviously have some power uh, considering how I grew up and what my background is. So now that I'm in a position that I'm in, um, all I do is try to find ways to use my platform to give back and to create equal opportunities, creating equal opportunities is key. And so looking at your procurement practices, what is the criteria that you're um, looking for? Let's say when you're looking for a supplier or what is the recruitment practices? What, are, what is exactly is the criteria? Have you made sure that you're eliminating barriers, closing gaps? Are you actually providing equal opportunity for me, that's where it starts. It's if everybody has an equal opportunity, then you know, then it's a little more fair for people to move forward. But uh, really taking a look at that, I think, is um, is key. And and some organizations do it well. Some still have some work to do. And um, there are people out there that can help you do that. 
Yeah. And supplier diversity programs are, you know, obviously a great way to support different um, entrepreneurs from different backgrounds and different cultures. My question to you, though, is how do we know, for example, somebody is Indigenous? So is it the responsibility of the person to say something or is it the responsibility of the organization to get to know the person? This is probably a very controversial question, but I'd like to hear from every single one of you because at the end of the day, like we're talking about, you know, at the at the top of this, we talk, we we had everybody identify themselves, but that's not always the case, and you can't tell just by looking at somebody. So, how do we have these discussions to get to know somebody so that we know that we need to implement these things and put these things into place? Yeah, it's great. I'm glad you asked that part of. Um, so sometimes you'll you'll see it actually in someone's resume. Sometimes it'll come up in an interview. Other times you can tailor your job description to invite not only Indigenous people, but all minority groups to apply and make it clear that you're not going to support racism in in any way, shape or form. And there are things that you can do there, your website, etc. But um, what we do actually as an organization is every quarter we send out uh, a self-declaration survey. It's confidential, anonymous. People have the opportunity to self-declare. The thousands of candidates we have in our system, the uh, thousands of employees we deploy, um, even we send it out to our suppliers and our clients because we want to track that as well. And it's it's not just Indigenous, it's a list of all the um, groups and we ask people to self-declare and we track those stats so we know the percentage huh. of of females versus indigenous versus black versus and so we it's interesting to watch watch the trends there and watch the stats and then of course we hold ourselves accountable to make sure that we are providing equal uh, opportunities and we review this i mean it's a tough thing to do um this is not something you accomplished overnight you you have to measure and then assess and tweak and measure again and assess and tweak and you'll notice gaps along the way and you you have to find ways to close those but it doesn't happen overnight it's really tough and it is usually up to the person to let you know and and volunteer that information because on the HR side of things it it can be you're not really supposed to ask those right those questions um and also keeping in mind that immigrants because Canada has a lot of immigrants some are terrified to tell you what their background is because they just got here. So they're so afraid to be, I don't know, deported or, or judged or, or put in a box that um, unfortunately sometimes you will never get answers from them. Well, and I think really similar with disability as well. Like if you, if you say you're disabled on a resume, you might not get the job. You might not even get the, the interview. And then there's so much, I've seen so many interesting conversations around at what point do you say yeah, You know, because I've definitely been in a position where I've had an employer yell at me for not being honest about my conditions and how they were managed when I had continued to have time off. But, you know, if I'd have said, I mean, I, I was fully honest, I think, on my CV, but if I'd said any more, I would have talked myself out of the job, you know, so it's really, it's really hard. I mean, I always try and say to people, specifically when it comes to disability, is you just ask, what are your access needs? And if you ask that all the time of everybody, then disabled or no, they might still, you know, I mean, when you think about parents with flexible working hours and people going through all sorts of different things, when, when you ask that question, because it covers so much, you know, it kind of makes it better for everybody. Um, but like you were saying, it's also putting it, you know, it's writing it into your job applications and the forms that people have to fill in. You know, it's very obvious to 
to us, you know, from, from a job description, whether or not we could physically do it. But then we don't know what is that workplace culture? Is it going to be hostile? If, you know, are they going to be supportive? But if they use the language of, you know, what are your access needs? Do you, you know, are you a wheelchair user? Do you have anything like that? Once, if you see an employer asking that question in a job role, then you know you're probably quite a lot safer, but it's still really quite rare to see that. Yes, yes. And so asking just a simple question, because it's kind of like, how do you get around the bias? So I like what Jennifer was talking about in doing a blind survey, which means that you're creating a safe space for people to tell you who they are, how they identify. um, And but it also gives you an idea as to the percentage of the population in your workplace that identifies this way or has a background from here or different things like that without creating bias. So I really, really, really like that because that's the biggest question. And then the other one is asking everybody, what's your accessibility needs? And that could mean different things for different people. Like you said, that could be parents or new new parents that might need some more flexibility from a remote working standpoint. Or it could be somebody that's in a wheelchair that needs to be able to get into the building and have that accessible ramp or different things like that. And so so asking it of everybody really levels that playing field, but it also allows the employer to really get an understanding of who that person is and how they want to work. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you want the most out of the people that you're wor- that are working for you. So you need to find out from them how they need to work to produce the best for you. And yeah. that doesn't exist in the box that we used to put it in before. <laughs> Lisa. Yeah. Um- I had was taking so many notes. Great topics to touch upon. Um, so, Jennifer, what you were saying about um, I, I wrote down poverty is a power structure. I mean, mm-hmm. we really need to understand that it is not the fault of the people that are in poverty. It is a power structure imposed upon them. Um, and so, it, the other thing I wrote down is data is power, and the way that you uh, choose to identify yourself is reclaiming that power. And, and other people in the world just have to deal with it if you are bold enough to put it out there that this is who I am and I deserve to occupy space, <laughs> you know, and you deserve to, you uh, need to respect me. Um, so the census here in the United States, I'll never forget when I had my first son uh, in 2005. I was very excited to check the Hispanic box on his birth certificate and all the paperwork. And then in uh, 2000 and when was my other son born? 2008. (laughs) Um, God, 2005 to 2008. um, I went to check the box for my second son and it was gone. And I said, I asked the hospital, what happened to the Hispanic box? What am I supposed to check? And they said, oh, white. What? Yeah. (laughs) The U.S. government decided that the Latino and Hispanic population was getting to be too sizable so that as a as a power in the uh, within the census, they had to erase our power. And they said, you're now in the white bucket. (laughs) Wow. Well, it's also like um, in one of the past episodes, I think it was Shneha that brought it up in the fact that she's from India And a lot of times the box that she's provided is Asian. Mm -hmm. They don't actually, they don't actually break out Asian into the different Mm -hmm. cultures and the different 
um, backgrounds for you to be able to actually claim that. And so, you know, like these are just my, these are small changes that need to be made, that can be made, that we real that could make some of the biggest impact to mental health yeah. and how yeah. people see themselves in the world. I felt erased. Yeah. And I was furious. Um, it, it's just mind numbing that, <laughs> that the government can just decide to take away your voice mm-hmm. as a community, as a people as a voting block, as, you know, it's just insane to me. And I, I, I told the doctor, I was like, wait, um, I, my skin begs to differ. I am not white. How dare they? Um, but it really is that data is power and the poverty is a power structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were gaining too much power, so they decided to erase it. Mm -hmm. Um, which is just mind-numbing. So I love that you actually ask people for their data um, uh, for Staff Shop. And I wrote down a couple of companies that um, are both either in our existing portfolio at Refashion Ventures or uh, companies that are just within our larger community that I'd love to connect you with. Mm -hmm. Um, One is The Convoy. He uh, actually has created a group... um, buying power for small businesses and he's working with all the local chamber of commerces and one of the things we discussed was you know allowing for small businesses to self-identify so that people can choose to uh, have all their suppliers be indigenous or female owned or black owned. So I'm just going to jump in here real quick because some of the challenges for a lot of small businesses is that you've got the certification bodies, right? Mm -hmm. You've got them for women, you've got them for, you know, black owned and different things like that. But, you know, at the same time, there's so many different places. It takes so much different money and so much different time <laughs> to get certified in all these different places. And it's kind of like, why can't we just come together and like... It took me... So I had a team member on my Refashion OS team just trying to manage the process of claiming my identity as a yes. minority woman-owned business. It took a team member three months and 600 pages that I had to mail in with my check no. to prove that I'm a Puerto Rican woman. Not, not. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of small businesses have the time or resources don't. to do this process? But even just um, being able to, to claim your identity and ethnicity on a non-government regulated level to self-identify is still powerful. And I'm not sure how we um, regulate that other than like, uh, yes, she's a brown woman. <laughs> like I have eyeballs. Um, or, or somebody being able to, to claim their, um, their disabilities, etc. But I think there is power in that because people are seeking out those differences. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't, if you don't have a bucket, a checkbox to claim, then you're invisible. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Edgeworth Box is another one. It's actually a Canadian company that is doing procurement, setting out RFPs and allowing for people to apply to the RFPs, specifically looking for emerging companies. Um, And then Stimulus is a portfolio company of ours that does procurement. Um, It's she builds it as a a customer relationship management tool for for procurement, specifically to help small businesses. Um, to be tracked and traced by the larger enterprises so that when they meet certain criteria, oh, we're looking for more indigenous suppliers. Yeah. They didn't meet this threshold. It triggers it when you do meet that threshold and you can now become a viable supplier. That's great. That's great. Because one of the things that I talked to Frances Edmond, she's the head of sustainability for HP Canada, about is like, where do we start in sustainability? And a lot of times we don't correlate sustainability and diversity and inclusion, but we really need to, right? It's even one of the sustainable development goals. And one of the, the ways that she implores organizations to get behind sustainability and diversity and inclusion is through a supplier diversity program, because it's one of the easiest and best ways to be able to, you know, get involved and start on that journey. So Jennifer, you're dealing with a lot of organizations and then I'm going to go to Victoria. Um, How can we celebrate cultures? What advice would you give to companies and organizations to celebrate culture? I mean, you already said to give them a safe space to self-identify so you know what percentages of people that you have within your organization. But then what do you do with that data and how do we celebrate celebrate people and we celebrate, um, you know, cultures and backgrounds and community. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important to just, uh, I, I see so many like silos and labels being put onto things. And sometimes like it gets to the point where it's like, well, I get asked a lot of questions about intersectionality and this and that. And I'm like, okay, like, they overthink it. First of all, everyone, we're all human. Let's not forget. <laughs> Second, like, let's all accept our, because you, you can go down these paths where it's like, it's so segregated, so siloed, so all over the place that you, you don't even, there's no end to it. And, um, and, and so uh, it, it almost separates and causes more divide. Um, so it's just about, you know, really accepting everyone, really making sure that you're creating an environment where, even though we have differences and we have opposite quote unquote cultures, sometimes um, we all have something in common and it's about celebrating diversity and really understanding that inclusion part, include everyone and find common ground. Um, It's not really about focusing on the differences so much. It's running away from uncomfortable situations. It's creating an environment where people can be their authentic selves, where they feel safe, where Christians, for example, and Muslims or, or um, um, uh, people from LGBTQ um, uh, community can also work side by side and um, uh, feel welcomed. And uh, anyone from any religious background or, or any type of background um, doesn't have to feel like, you know, there's a label on them or, um, uh, you know, have it be an excuse to not, I guess, interact uh, positively with others. Um, so we're just like really careful about n- not being divisive in how we ask questions and how we put labels on things and create more silos. Um, so that that would be one thing is just remembering that. And um, I would hope that with all the EDI initiatives out there these days, 
that people and companies are really focusing on that, that equal opportunity part and getting that right. Um, respect, acceptance, love, forgiveness, this is all important. Um, but the equal opportunity is, uh, is key because I still sometimes see even through all the governing or certifying bodies, um, all that paperwork, Lisa, you were talking about, you know, you have to divulge your financials. You have to, like, there's a lot to do. I'm part of a lot of organizations and I'm like, man, sometimes I look at what they ask for. I'm like, do you, do you really need this? Like, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and like, let's stay focused on what's important, like provide that equal opportunity because the problem is a lot of the diverse suppliers sometimes are small businesses. And although big business wants to give, um, people like us, uh, an opportunity, sometimes like the first question is what's your annual revenue and right. why are you yeah. asking that question? Because that can knock out the, just forget the whole diverse supplier thing then, because that yeah. can knock out all the players right there. Yeah. And then you go and divulge your, your financials. And then all of a sudden you don't get selected. So what are you selecting people based on? Like a, can they do the job? B, do they have a great brand? Can you trust them? there's ways to make sure someone can financially handle the business and you can get to that part later, but that's not what you should be using to make your initial decisions. So I really hope that especially larger organizations that say that they want to make a difference and say that they want to give people like us an opportunity. I really hope that they tighten up those, those types of procurement practices that I feel like are outdated and there's still yeah. a lot out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm going to jump in there because, you know, look, even uh, grants for women-owned businesses. I mean, the money that's out there is pitiful. Like <laughs> and you the have process. To spend, oh, my God. The, the process. High You have to have a certain amount of revenue, which doesn't work in every single industry. And then the top three prizes equal a total of $100,000, and you have to spend six months in their facility. And you're like... <laughs> who made up these rules? Because that doesn't work for me. And I'm not entirely sure who that works for. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then uh, just a couple of things on what Jennifer said. And then Lisa, if you want to jump in, we'll go to Victoria. Um, both sides need to have grace, though, because I think organizations are not going to get it right every single time. And so us getting mad you know, and upset right away, um, I think is, is really a barrier for them to, okay, apologize, start again and try again. We need to be able to have the grace and the space for both sides to keep trying because, and, and really think about the intention behind what's happened because they're not, not everybody's going to get it right all the time. And then the other thing I've struggled with the word inclusion because I think inclusion means tolerance. Yeah. We what we don't need is tolerance and we don't need to check a box. Hmm. So I want to, I don't know how I'm gonna do this because everybody's all like DEI. <laughs> and if we change it to DEA, we might have a problem with a US, <laughs> a US government agency. But I want it could to, have the opposite effect. <laughs> I want to change the word inclusion to acceptance because acceptance is about love and it's about grace and it's about how we accept everybody. Like, yes, everybody needs to be included. 
But I don't, I, I hate that we sort of set a tolerance that we have to do certain things to make sure that we're, we're doing something. It should just be, you know, the intention behind it, the acceptance. So just a couple of things that I wanted to jump on what you said. Love what you said, <laughs> Jennifer, Lisa, I know you're talking. I think, yeah. Just, I, just tell us, <laughs> give it to us straight. <laughs> I love um, changing D, E, and I. I think it may be D, E, V. Uh, and the last word being value that we're valuing, not just accepting, but valuing. I've got it. It's diva. D V A. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Because there is a massive difference between tolerance, acceptance, and value. Um, and I think that all of those need to be addressed. So um, I had written down diversity is a superpower and that we need to change the lens that we look at diversity and inclusion through and not see it as a checkbox or an opportunity to introduce weakness, less than-ness into your company because you're being forced to. (laughs) You need to start seeing it as a superpower that you're missing out on because of the homogeny. And it, it really truly comes down to being seeing people as full people, like a full human, rather than a gender, a skin color, an ability or disability or whatever. You need to see them as their life experiences mm-hmm. that add a lens to your business and serving your consumer that you're lacking. Because that yeah. lack of, of a lens on your current team is an opportunity for your competitor and is, is an opportunity for someone to better serve your customer because they don't all look like you and they yeah. don't all think like you and they don't all have the same abilities as you. Um, I mean, obviously, in Silicon Valley, there has been a, a huge amount of technologies that have overlooked, you know, women or people of color, like <laughs> facial recognition technology, where famously they had uh, the black female engineer in Silicon Valley who tried using the facial recognition technology and they couldn't even identify any facial features. It was just a black hole because the male engineers that developed it were white men and <laughs> they didn't remotely accommodate for the fact that there are other skin tones. <laughs> wow. And, and, and voice recognition technology as well, um, where certain female octaves just are not registered for voice recognition technology, because again, it was engineered by men and they were like, oh, wait, there other people's voice intonations and octaves matter. Like, why would anyone need to have a different octave than the one I prioritize and have? So, um, if you're looking at inclusion and acceptance and it should be seen as massive business opportunity because women, last time I checked, we're still half of the world. (laughs) And more importantly to businesses, we are 80 plus percent of, of wallet spend per household. We make the decisions of where capital gets allocated and we should be revered rather than tolerated. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And I love what you're doing on the venture side because we definitely need more of it because when I was trying to get funding, man, it was, I didn't get it. It was really, really hard. There was nobody that looked like me in some of these meetings. And some of the times 
when you're seeing this group of venture capital and and they've they've invested in a company and then they take a picture of the board meeting, it's kind of like, yeah. hello, yeah. where is everybody? <laughs> because all I can clearly see, you know, are 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 non diverse. Yeah, <laughs> like when I was raising no diversity to it. When I was raising capital, I was coached to change and disguise how I spoke, how I dressed, how I walked and stood, and that I was too feminine and that I needed to appeal to the white male VCs so that they would invest in me. I was like, do you not see how I want to use a curse word, but I won't, so this isn't explicit, (laughs) how messed up that is? (laughs) I got told font. Like, yeah. I got told by a white guy that I needed to change my font, other than, well, otherwise they would not support my pitch deck and not show it to other people. I was like, yeah. I, I saw... Like, so, if somebody doesn't want to invest in me because I didn't use the font that they wanted me to use, exactly. I don't need them anyways, but okay. And this boils down to just, um, you know, now that I'm a VC and I've raised venture as a founder and now from LPs as a VC... Um, it really comes down to, like anything in life, finding your people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I say your people, it's not other Puerto Ricans from the Bronx for me, <laughs> although I'm down with that. Um, it's, it's people that will instantly see your value and lean in to amplify it rather than to deplete it or right. diminish it. And yeah. you can tell within an instant um, and I think women have a superpower with our native sixth sense that instantly you can identify who is going to amplify or diminish you. Yeah. And Absolutely. when you seek out amplifiers, um, you will find that I think that's the biggest issue with what's broken in venture capital today. There are too many white male VCs that seek out other people that they that remind them of themselves and that are building things they care about and love and want to have a network they can directly contribute to and see value in that just aren't diverse enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that these um, female founders or disabled founders or fashion tech founders don't have valuable insights and in businesses. It's that the people that are deploying capital don't have an expanded enough lens to understand the value. Mm-hmm. And so there is massive business uh, that's being left on the table and because of unconscious bias mm-hmm. and all of us whether it's it's unconscious for a reason we're not choosing to be jerks <laughs> uh, again I was gonna insert a, <laughs> a bad word <laughs> um, but <laughs> we're not choosing to be this way just everyone there are so many studies that state that you know like seeks out like mm-hmm. and it is a natural comfort zone and so for us to fix what's broken about venture capital and business, we need to uh, disable the power structure of poverty and those who have power and sit in positions of power to be able to decide what gets to exist and have value in this planet. And I also think, because I was listening to a Lewis Howes podcast the other day, financial literacy is uh-huh. huge, 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 huge. And that's kind of the basis of some of the conversations that we're having about poverty and being able to have equal opportunity. And, you know, because the more you can understand about that, 
the more conversations that you can have, but a lot of people don't want us to understand that or don't want a lot of groups to understand it. And I think financial literacy. So thank you for that. Victoria, do you want to jump on this? And then we're going to get to one thing that you want the audience to leave this conversation with. Nice. Um, yeah, I've got so many good points there. Like I've been scribbling notes away as well. I mean, I don't know the I don't know the US stats. I only know the UK, but and I only found this fact out last October, and I've been raging ever since. That in the UK, for every one pound raised through VC, one p goes to women. And I was like, Ooh. okay, <laughs> that's that's pretty bad. And I was like, and how many of those women? are disabled or from you know different ethnicity like different age everything and I thought well you know I mean it's what I'm still at the phase of like I'm starting to broach investors but it's still you know I mean the the struggle I generally had is there's not a huge amount of disabled sort of VCs and people with huge sort of you know it's not that all disabled people are in poverty although we are 50% more likely to be it's not the case for everybody but it's certainly that you know we're not holding all the cards um you know there's a lot of gatekeeping so then trying to persuade you know as we said you know trying to persuade people why they should care and why they should invest in you know disabled business even if it's even if the business itself isn't actually anything to do with disability but trying to get them to see the value in it is quite hard you know and then and when you look at that stat, you're already deflated before you even start because you're <laughs> yeah. like, where do I spend my time and my money? Do I spend my time and my money actually building my business and keeping it going? Or do I spend my time and my money going after that one P? Yeah, you know? exactly. And then the other problem, you know, I mean, it's, I don't think it's unique to the disabled community, but it's certainly quite a big portion is we still segregate in education at school, you know, primary school to secondary school. I'm trying to think fifth grade. All like at all levels, you know, people don't have equal access to education, so they're not as likely to get the kind of jobs that are going to pay more. So we're absolutely trapped. And then, you know, on top of that, there is we don't have. I mean, it's one that's really interesting, and this is global. We don't have marriage equality. If you're on benefits, you might. I mean, in the states, you might lose all of them. In the UK, they will reduce. You don't necessarily lose them, but you might not have as much if you marry somebody. So some people have to choose between marrying their partner or living separately rather than, you know, that. And when, you you know, I mean, it feeds into everything. But, yeah, if you can't, if we don't have the same access to everything, I mean, I find that one especially depressing because, you know, we should all be allowed to love who we want to love and live with who we want to live with and marry who we want to marry. That should be just something that, you know, we take as, a, you know, it's a human right. Um, yeah. But, yeah, when it comes to education, it's really tough because, I mean, specifically with a fashion lens, you know, it's not an industry famously kind to disabled people anyway. It's been extremely exclusive. And then you look at the, you know, the, the design schools. Are they, are they, you know, is it is it possible for someone who, with a disability to, are they encouraged to study fashion design? And then if they're not, how are they then going to go in and become a designer anyway? And then if they were a disabled designer, who's going to hire them? And, you know, from personal experience, half the buildings that I ever worked in were super inaccessible Anyway, I mean, I think one place it was on the fourth floor and there was no lift. And, you know, like I'm not a wheelchair user, but I'm not very good with stairs. So like every day I was having to start, you know, with an hour long commute, stood up, then going up four flights of stairs and the bathroom was two floors down. And you just thought by the end of the day, exhausted. (laughs) Just think, you know, so and that's, you know, I'm relatively, I was very privileged to be able to work in some of these places, but, you know, you're excluded immediately from that. So, well, and it just goes to show how important community is and how the within that community, we have to amplify, we have to amplify voices, we have to support each other, because that's really 
one of the ways that we're going to create impact and we're going to be able to move this forward a lot faster than we have in previous years. So what do we want to leave the audience with? Just one thing. I don't know how easy that's going to be for you guys because we have talked about a lot today and it's been a fantastic discussion. But if we wanted to leave the audience with one thing, either something that they could do today, something that they could maybe implement, something that they could think about, what would that one thing be? Uh, Lisa, you first. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Um, I will say... It's kind of a couple of things strung together. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) It's okay. Go ahead. So where you come from doesn't define where you're going. And and it it will shape it, but it doesn't define it and doesn't limit it. And usually um, your your struggles become your gift. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of really understanding them and how to turn them into your gift and superpower. Because mm-hmm. you can spend so much of your life, and it sounds like all of us have had some level of this, where you're fighting it. And it's this massive source of pain and um, shame and hurt. But then when you can find yourself on the other side of it and and looking objectively at it, what you learn from it and what a gift you can then give to others to accept their own trauma and pain and struggles, um, it's, it's everything. And so it leads into my last comment, which is, um, you know, finding your people. That sometimes you are sitting there in this deep place of pain and you do need to look around and just see if you're surrounding yourself with jerks that are (laughs) diminishing you or, you know, look at the people around you. If you're in this constant struggle and constant state of pain, look at who's benefiting from keeping you in that diminished state. Yeah. And if it's the people around you, change change who you're surrounding yourself with yeah. because your opportunities absolutely amplify and increase when you surround yourself with people that see your value and want to amplify and increase you. And it's night and day. As soon as you come to that realization, you actively seek out to make that change. It's painful because you do have to, you know, uh, let go of certain people and things that you clung to in your life. But all growth comes through pain. So yeah. embrace it. Thank you. Thank you for that, Lisa. Jennifer, you're next. What's one thing you want people to leave here with? Yeah, that was so good. Uh, Lisa, you just <laughs> reminded me um, uh, about pain. People are so afraid of pain. You shouldn't be. Um, it's the opposite of, of joy. And I don't think you could feel that if you didn't know what pain is, right? So, but um uh, for me, I would just say, you know, one, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis comes to mind. It says, we can't go back and change the beginning, but uh, we can start where we are and change the ending. And so, you know, just a reminder to maybe keep it simple and include and accept everyone. Um, try to understand, learn, and maybe go befriend someone that you wouldn't normally befriend. Yeah. And see what you can learn from that person. Yeah. And everybody's going through a journey. Remember that you're not, you're not the only one going through it. It's, it's always a journey. It's not a destination. And I think sometimes we forget about that. So last but absolutely not least, Victoria. 
Oh, tough. Um, so there's kind of two, and it, it's it's a, a variation or a simplification, I suppose, but diversify your feed, you know, like yeah. it's so easy to, you know, look into an echo chamber and you only see, and you, you kind of forget, you think that's all that's around you because that's what you're choosing to see. And there are algorithms choosing that for you. So you kind of, you do have to seek it out. And I think that's something that everybody can do every day, you know, just look at a hashtag that you wouldn't normally look at, follow it, and then it goes into your feed. You know, I've found all sorts of weird and wonderful things and <laughs> subcultures and all sorts. You know, there was a huge, like, by pirate theme on TikTok, and I have no idea how I came across it. But it was fantastic. All these sea shanties and these women dressing from you know, like women to men. It was absolutely incredible. I had a great time. Um, and it was, you know, it was really unexpected. It was great. Um, and then the other one, and it's kind of one of my biggest ones, is, you know, disability isn't a bad word. I think um, a lot of people think it is. Disability is nothing, you know, it's, it's a descriptor. It's not, a, it's not an inherently negative thing. It's only what we attach to that word that makes it negative. So it's not a bad word. Don't be afraid of it. And we don't all bite. <laughs> I love that. So many great nuggets from everybody. Thank you so much to Lisa, Victoria, and Jennifer for joining me today. Culture and community is a huge topic. Too much to cover in one show, really, but it's so nice to have an honest and open forum to start to discuss these things that are so important to us, so personal and yet aren't always respected or understood. The culture or community that each each of us has come from and the differing communities that play their parts during the course of our lives are truly instrumental in making us who we are. And really taking the time to hear and embrace that can make us all better friends, partners, parents, colleagues, truly better people. So don't forget that you can reach out to me or any of the guests on social media if you have anything you'd like to add or ask a question about what we've talked about today. And remember to join us again next time for episode 18 of Blended, where we'll be diving into more thought-provoking issues around diversity, inclusion, and equality. You don't want to miss that, and I'll see you then. Ladies, thank you so much for an incredible discussion, for being open, honest, authentic. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.